Hello folks and welcome to the latest episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a show that is exactly what it says on the tin and one that each week myself, the host and creator Paul, digs at a case of interest usually not to a familiar one from the dark recesses of the UK and Ireland. It's pretty meaningless doing that though without you guys listening in and here you are, which I thank you all very much for doing so and hope that the episode finds you all good and well. Now we are rumbling towards the end of the show's third series now before I'm going to have a slight break to recharge and then come back for another round because there's still plenty of tales I've got on the blackboard. It's a proper work in progress that is, believe me. I do love doing the show but I found this series, especially towards the end of it, a bit stop-start. I feel like I'll get a good momentum of episodes and then real life proper gets in the way. But what can I say without sounding like that beardo rag and bone man? I'm only human and these things do crop up. So a couple of Patreon episodes have been used to stand in as episodes. Thanks very much this week. Go out to my returning and new show Patreon supporters. That's Jess, Amy Phillips, Isabella Sapiano Farley, Tegan Smith, Alice Autumn and Tim Wilson. Thanks very much and welcome guys. It's most appreciated and kind of you. And like these folks, if you too fancy hearing extra full-length episodes of the show, or even getting yourself some things, who knows, then it couldn't be simpler. Just head on over to the Patreon site and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on there, or use the link that I've conveniently placed in this week's show notes. It's very reasonable, and it's very self-explanatory to do. So this week on the show brings the second part of the Ladies of the Lake episodes, and likely this one is the more familiar of the crimes. I have to stress that they're not connected anyway, I'm not highlighting some body in lake dumping serial killer here, it's just a themed episode and each case is only coincidental with the geography of them and the method of disposal. Like the previous episode, The Secret of Wasp Water, We are once again back up in Cumbria's Lake District for this one, and again, this is a case that spans many years. If it is one that you're familiar with already, then you'll know it's quite a controversial case that makes headlines even still today. And if you aren't familiar with it, well, have a listen and make your own mind up about it after the episode. During my extensive research, and I proper did go into it on this one, I did come across several points of ambiguity, but... I'll explain as and when come across these, and I've gone throughout with the most concurrent accounts from the multiple sources that I used. As ever on the show, the episode this week contains descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so please use your discretion, folks. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as this week we look at part two of Ladies of the Lake, The Corpse in Coniston Water. So I'm doing the Stato bit now then. If you're in the UK listening, do you remember Stato from Fantasy Football? Many years ago now. Coniston Water lies parallel with and 10 miles to the west of Lake Windermere, being the third largest lake up in Cumbria's Lake District. It's 5 miles long, half a mile wide and 56 metres at its maximum depth. So there are others that are bigger and deeper, but you still wouldn't like to try and drink it, would you? For many years, Coniston Water was most famous for being the scene where on the 4th of January 1967, land and water speed record breaker Donald Campbell lost his life in a horrific 300 mile per hour crash in Bluebird K7, a jet-engined hydroplane. 
Campbell had already set several of these records. Indeed, he actually remains the only person to set both land and water speed records in the same year, 1964, and was that day on Coniston Water attempting yet another of these, when Bluebird sadly somersaulted out of control and crashed at high speed. Although pieces of Bluebird were discovered and retrieved by divers the following day, Donald Campbell's body wasn't found among the debris, and after two weeks the search was called off. For more than 30 years, both skipper and boat stayed together down there, the exact resting place of the wreckage being a closely guarded secret known only to a handful of people. Until in 2000, when over a six-month project, the main hull and components of Bluebird were raised from the bottom of the lake. Campbell's body was also finally discovered and raised on the 28th of May 2001 and after 34 years he was interred at a service in St Andrew's Church in Coniston on the 12th of September 2001. Unsurprisingly, given the date of this service, it was overshadowed in the news. I'm sure that you can imagine why. In more recent years though, Coniston has become more famous, or infamous perhaps, for the case that we'll look at this week. As with the other lakes in the belt, it's a picturesque and massively popular tourist and holiday area, with many flocking there each year to appreciate the scenery and to enjoy the pastimes that the lake has to offer. Like the other lakes, it's a bit of a haven for sailing, and it's a haven also for subaqua enthusiasts. For many years I can imagine that loads of these were off looking for the remains of Bluebird. But one morning in August 1997, two divers found something else. Amateur divers John Walsh and David Mason had both dived Coniston Water many times before, and on the clear morning of Wednesday the 13th of August 1997, both were out towards Coniston's deepest known fathoms a spot about 200 metres out from the shore of Bailiff Wood in Brantwood, which is about halfway down the east side of the lake. That day both had set their diving depth at 25 metres, which was deeper than they'd usually go, and they were exploring the silty rocky slope at a depth of about 21 metres when they came across a sizeable package resting on a ledge near to where the lake bed slopes down to its deepest point. Now it's very dark down there, by all accounts visibility only extends to about 2 metres in front of you. So if something like that suddenly loomed up out of the darkness, would you proper brick it like I would? Well, I wouldn't be down there at all actually, I think I'd feel a bit claustrophobic and it would freak me out far too much that would. Both John and David were to admit later their apprehension at what they'd found. But it is reported that the two divers salvaged the package themselves and brought it to the shore, thinking that it might have been something that had fallen off a boat. One account claims this was actually done three days later, and the package was initially discovered on Sunday the 10th of August, but was left there and retrieved on Wednesday the 13th of August. It's the latter date that the majority of sources claim that it was retrieved. Upon the shore they could see clearer what they'd glimpsed at only by torchlight in the silty underwater. Whatever it was, the package was about four feet in length, was wrapped extensively in what looked to be a canvas bag type holdall with a drawstring, and had been fastened with rope both thoroughly and intricately. It also appeared to have been underwater for a considerable period of time. Using his diver's knife, David slit the package open, and a section of lead weight fell out of the gap that he'd made. Taking into account this, and the fact that whatever it was, 
and a later television documentary described the men seeing pieces of a white chicken-like texture inside had been trussed in wrapped in such a way and they decided to summon police. When informed of the find, police arrived at the lakeshore about 9.30pm that evening where the outer packaging of the bundle was cut open to reveal a green covering underneath, underneath which were two plastic bin liners. Underneath these were the remains of a badly decomposed body trussed up in the fetal position. It appeared to be that of a female due to a still discernible blue baby doll type nightdress that the corpse wore and the head it was apparent had become detached from the rest of the remains. Police also noticed that the body was tied with half inch thick rope that extended around the corpse at least three times. The scene was immediately secured and in the early hours of the following morning the body was removed to the mortuary at nearby Furness General Hospital for post-mortem. Upon examination, the bag that had contained the body was found to have been crafted together from a pinafore dress, tied by straps at one end and looped through string at the other to form this. A black plastic bag encased the head and upper third of the body, whilst the lower part was contained in a green nylon-type material that appeared to be the remains of a rucksack with a black plastic covering also encasing this. Several lengths of blue nylon rope and string were found tightly knotted around the body to secure it in the position that it lay, using a series of differing complex knots, similar to those used in sailing or climbing, in an intricate pattern that led all around and across the body. The best way to describe it is that it had been trussed up. The lead weight found to weigh some 12 pounds and to have been a lengthy section of piping that had been manually flattened and folded over several times, had been attached to the body through a section of blue rope passed through one of these folds, then secured to the other ropes to be used as an anchor. The body itself was that of a petite female thought to have been between 5 foot 1 and 5 foot 4 in height and aged between 20 and 30 years at the time of death. Dressed in a still discernible flower patterned blue baby doll style nightdress, she was estimated to have been in the water for a minimum of about 15 years due to the advanced state of decomposition of the body. I did read in a couple of accounts that the body was found to have sticking plaster or tape placed over the eyes, yet other more in-depth accounts I found make no mention of this whatsoever, so I've mentioned it here as a point of interest only, I don't know how true it is or not. There are also photographs of the body at the time of its examination available through an online search that do make for chilling viewing really. Now whilst there are documented cases of the extreme lengths that some people do go to for suicide by drowning, this certainly wasn't one of them. This woman hadn't tied herself up intricately in a lead-weighted bag and sank to the bottom of Coniston water to end it all. She'd been brutally murdered and her body had been dumped there and brutal is an understatement. Apart from fractures to the bones of the left hand and left wrist of the woman, which were deemed consistent with being defensive injuries, extensive fractures to the facial bones of the woman were also revealed. Her entire upper jaw and the central facial bones of the skull had been smashed into pieces from a downward right direction resulting in extensive damage to the face, the front portion of the skull and the roots of the upper teeth. She'd been struck at least twice like this.
The examining pathologist, Dr Edmund Tapp, estimated that it had taken a substantial weapon or instrument to inflict such destruction, and cause of death was, according to him, due to injuries consistent with a downward blow or blows from a heavy, sharp object. He stressed sharp because when the facial bones of the skull were pieced together at the mortuary, several of them had a sharp edge where they'd become detached, as though they'd been sliced or cleaved by something, rather than roughly broken. He estimated that the weapon was likely to be some sort of implement such as a pick or a hand axe that had destroyed the central portion of the face and this destruction, together with the inhalation of blood from such horrific wounds, had caused death mercifully quickly, as you can imagine that it would do. That must have been absolutely horrendous, wasn't it? How savage is that? That's proper, proper anger there, isn't it? So as you can imagine then, News of a trussed-up, badly decomposed body being raised from a watery grave of 15 years plus tends to make for sensational widespread news. Macabre discoveries like that always do, don't they? And whilst police look back through the list of missing persons who fitted the known criteria, reports of the discovery were all over the press and television, with public speculation already forming as to the identity of who the lady in the lake, as she was christened by the press, who she was. It must be an awful thing that. Imagine if you have a loved one or a friend who goes missing and the days that they're gone turn into weeks, then into months, then even stretch into years with no news or phone calls, sightings whatsoever. Every time news of an unidentified body being discovered hits the news, then you must always be left thinking, God, is this so-and-so? The not knowing must be awful. I always think that and and it's got to happen every time, hasn't it? So following the discovery, the Missing Persons Bureau at London's New Scotland Yard had been contacted, and a search of their records provided Cumbria Police with some 46 possibilities of persons who the body in Coniston Water may be, based on the description of the woman and the time frame in which she was reported missing against the length of time that she'd been in the water. Before police had even received this list, however, there were several people throughout the Cumbria area and even further afield, that the instant they heard news that a body had been fished out of Coniston Water, their thoughts went immediately to one name, a long-missing person that instantly came to their minds, and when the description was broadcast in an appeal on regional television, they contacted police to voice their suspicions. The name that people such as Mary and David Robinson, Ivor and Maureen Price and their daughters Kay and Claire Gardner all passed on to police was that of Carol Ann Park, a 31-year-old mother of three who'd been reported missing from the village of Lease, just 15 miles from Coniston Water 21 years before in 1976. Now Carol's name was one of those included among the 46 cases that had been sent up for comparison and the papers sent to Cumbria Police included her dental records for comparison purposes. Before any examination between these records and the teeth extracted from the Coniston body was undertaken, however, speculation was already rife in the local and national press that this was indeed Carol Park. And the press speculation was indeed right, because on Friday the 22nd of August, a packed press conference held in Penrith, Detective Superintendent Ian Douglas of Cumbria Police revealed that a dental comparison had concluded beyond any doubt 
that the body found in Coniston Water almost a week before was that of Carol Ann Park. She'd last been seen more than 21 years before in July 1976, and as no single trace of her had been reported ever since then, had likely been down in the bottom of Coniston Water between that time and a week before. The same year as Margaret Hogg, only a few miles away. 1976 and bodies in lakes. What's going on there? So who was Carol Ann Park and what was her story? On the 18th of December 1945, a 24-year-old Bristol woman named Elsie Sanders gave birth to an illegitimate daughter, the result of a wartime fling with the identity of the father remaining unknown. It certainly wasn't Elsie's husband George, as he was a serving soldier in Burma at the time, so in what was a not uncommon practice back then, Elsie was sent off somewhere to have the child, apparently to conceal the pregnancy from her husband. It must have happened often, that must have. Husband is away in the war, gets back to find that his wife has become lonely and born another man's child in his absence, and feeling wronged, if you like, rejects the child. So what happens to save the marriage? The child is put up for adoption. Elsie and George handed the baby girl over formally in early 1946 to Stanley and Winifred Price, a couple from the Roos area of Barrow in Furness, now part of Cumbria, but at the time part of Lancashire. The couple already had a six-year-old son, Ivor, but had lost a second child, Brian, early in his infancy, so perhaps as much as to fill this void as to give a child a loving home, they were only too happy to take the girl who was christened Carol Ann Price. Carol was never destined to meet her birth parents as they emigrated to New Zealand sometime in the 1950s. Well, Elsie and George did, of course. She never knew who her natural father was. They did go on to have other children, a son together, and two more from Elsie's second marriage following a divorce from George, but none of these half-siblings were ever destined to meet Carol either. It's unknown if they even knew of her existence. By most accounts, Carol had a happy childhood and was accepted readily into the Price family, which was completed with the birth of their third natural child, Christine, in 1951. She was close with her older brother, Ivor, and loved being the big sister to Christine, and in this happy home, Carol flourished. Academically, she excelled at school, showing a special aptitude for music, and by age 12 was an accomplished and regular organist at St Luke's Church in Roos. She had many friends at this time, all attracted by her spirit and personality, and Carol sailed through the 11-plus examinations to go on to attend Barrow Girls Grammar School. Here, she once again excelled academically, having an especial aptitude for languages and attaining fluency in both French and German, which she wished to go on to study at university with hopes to become a teacher of one or both of these. However, Carol's progression to higher education was halted in 1963 by the sudden death of her adoptive father, Stanley. And as her older brother, Ivor, was now married and living with a family of his own, Carol felt that her best efforts were to find full-time employment locally to keep a wage coming into the household where she lived with her mother and younger sister. She left school and found employment as a clerk working in the finance department of Barrow and Furness Town Hall, a role that she was to hold for some 18 months before leaving to resume her education by enrolling upon a teacher training course at Matlock College in Derbyshire 
in September 1964. By this time, Carol was almost 19 years old and was enjoying a very active, very flourishing social life. Described as always being smartly and fashionably dressed, the most common words that I found to describe Carol at this time through research were sociable, popular and vivacious. And this equated to Carol having more than her fair share of male attention. Indeed, pictures of her from the time show her to be an attractive woman. And her brother Ivor described the string of suitors and boyfriends that his sister had, all having their heads turned by the striking young woman. But there was one in particular that came into her life around this time, 1964, who was to become the most prominent and defining male figure in Carol Ann Park's life. Gordon Park was almost two years older than Carol and was the middle child of Barrow residents Sidney and Elsie Park, having an elder sister Barbara and a younger brother Sidney Terence, who was known as Terry to avoid confusion with his father. Gordon came into the world on the 25th of January 1944 and whilst the Park family grew, they moved around a succession of addresses around Barrow before the family finally settled at a house in Rampside which is very near to Row Island Sailing Club. Intelligent but unremarkable academically, Gordon attended local primary schools in the area and went on to be a pupil at Barrow Grammar School where although he was described as serious and methodical, he was well liked and made several lifelong friends who shared his interests for the outdoors. This was a passion he'd inherited from his father Sidney, who was an active and enthusiastic camper, climber and member of the local sailing club, and both Gordon and his younger brother were involved in these pursuits from an early age, joining and spending many years in the scouts and becoming familiar with the many bodies of water up in the Lake District while sailing them on their father's 14-foot sailing dinghy. By the early 1960s, the Parks had a prosperous and comfortable lifestyle. Sydney Park had over many years built up a successful painting and decorating business, Sydney Sea Park Limited, and the business name changed to Sydney Sea Park and Sons in the early 1960s when Gordon and his brother joined the firm after both had left school. By this time, it was operating out of a number of shops in both Barrow and the neighbouring town of Ulverston and was doing well enough for the family to have a nice house and a decent car, as well as being able to own a large static caravan in the village of Torva, which is very close to Coniston Water. Sydney Park's dinghy would often be loaded onto the trailer that it was kept on at the house in Rampside, and the family would set off to spend weekends here sailing on Coniston Water, which was a place that Gordon came to know well. On one occasion, around 1958, one such trip made local and even national headlines when the boat that Gordon, his father and brother and a family friend, Tony Salton, were sailing in capsized and they were rescued by none other than Leo Villa, who was the chief mechanic for Donald Campbell, who, as you know, would a few years later sadly have his own fatal connection with Coniston Water. Besides this, Gordon retained his other pursuits, becoming an experienced and efficient rock climber always off camping or with the scouts, and as he moved into his late teens, the general consensus was that he preferred the outdoors and doing stuff like this to other things, such as chasing girls and the general hell-raising that you do when you're a youngster. Indeed, his family and close friends don't recall him having any serious romantic attachments before Gordon met and began courting a local girl named Jennifer Shaw. It was a short-lived romance, 
but Jennifer was someone who would come back into his life more than two decades later. Following this, he had a brief but unsuccessful fling with a woman named Susan Dampier, which ended as soon as it had begun, although not on bad terms. They certainly got on well enough still for him to be invited to a party that she threw in early 1964 at her home in the village of Lease, about five miles away from the Park household, which Gordon attended. Also attending the party that evening was a friend of Susan's from her school days who'd come by herself but was to leave that evening with the genesis of a new relationship beginning. Caroline Park Many sources that I used for research claim that this is where Gordon and Carol's relationship began at this party, but it can also be suggested that they weren't exactly strangers to each other before this. Both had attended schools in the Barrow area, and it is possible that they were already known to one another, at least by sight, beforehand. Regardless, going on from here, they began seeing each other on a regular basis, a relationship which rapidly became serious. By the time Carol had left Barrow to attend a teacher training course at Matlock College in September 1964, she considered Gordon her boyfriend, and by the following month, the two were officially an item and were engaged. By all accounts, Carol attended a course as a resident at Matlock College for almost three years, and in such circumstances, one could almost expect a newish relationship to flounder due to the strain such a separation would place on it. But in this case, it appears their relationship remained strong throughout the separation, kept alive by romantic gestures such as Gordon sending her a red rose each week, which Carol would become upset about if the delivery was late or was missed. She naturally settled back into education and she flourished on the training course, winning herself many more friends, with her closest being a woman named Rosemary Gardner, who was to remain in touch with Carol for many years afterwards. The two women hit it off rapidly and Rosemary was quick to learn that Carol had a boyfriend back in Barrow who she talked about usually animatedly in glowing terms. Yet she was surprised when she herself met Gordon at a college summer ball at the end of the first term at Matlock. He seemed, according to Rosemary, unemotional, deep and intense and she also perceived him to be quite domineering over Carol. She does also claim though that around this time Carol was in rather an emotionally insecure state as it was around then that she just learned she was an adopted child. An admission that for some time caused friction between Carol and her mother as she felt resentful that she'd never been told this sooner. She also confided to Rosemary that she believed that Gordon was involved in an affair back home in Barrow although this was a suspicion that was apparently never confirmed. Perhaps in retaliation for this suspicion, if you like, Carol herself developed what is described only as a close relationship. Nothing further could be drawn on this, so take that to mean what you will, with a college lecturer named Charles Cook. If it was a relationship, then it wasn't a serious one, and it certainly ended by the start of Carol's final term at Matlock College in 1966. In December that year, there was a lavish birthday party thrown for her 21st birthday at the Park household in Rampside that was attended by several of her friends and family, and photographs from the time that are available for search show a happy, lively young woman who appears to have everything going for her. She was on course to attain qualification for a chosen career, and was happily engaged to her fiancé, who at the time was hand-building the couple's future matrimonial home. 
Gordon had bought two World War II prefabs in the centre of the nearby Cumbrian village of Lees, overlooking Lees Tarn, and using almost the sole volunteer labour of several of his friends with him leading, over the course of a year constructed a three-bedroom bungalow that he christened Bluestones for the couple to move into. It was habitable and almost near completion by July 1967, the same month where at Rampside Parish Church in Barrow, Gordon Park and Caroline Price were married. The marriage appeared from the start to be a happy and harmonious one. The couple were comfortably off, with Gordon continuing his role on the family painting and decorating business, whilst Carol found employment soon after qualifying as a teacher by accepting a role at Victoria County Junior School in Barrow. They soon settled into lease and busied themselves in village life, making several friends amongst the community, including their close neighbours Mary and David Robinson and next-door neighbour Sabrine Dixon, all of whom were regular guests at several parties that the parks held at Bluestones in the early years that they were there. Another aspect of Carol and Gordon's social activity at this time was the couple's membership of the Barrow Round Table and its sister body, the Ladies' Circle, a kind of social and community service-based club where its members met ostensibly for fundraising activity for charities and to organise social and community-based events. In reality, these things are usually an excuse for a cheap bar and knobheads doing the old secret handshake brigade, that type of nonsense. My dad was into something similar many years ago, and believe me, he can be an Olympic standard knobhead on times. God, he can indeed. Gordon had become a member of here about 1964, and as members' wives automatically qualified for the ladies' circle, Carol joined also, and he and Carol attended many of the club's social functions forthwith, which they continued to do right up into the early 1970s. It was at the onset of the 1970s that the club also took on a bit more of a free-spirited turn, shall we say, and it changed character from rotary club note-taking, whist drives and secret handshakes to let's have a pint and I'll swap you your missus for mine tonight. Those kind of backdoor shenanigans, you know? I bet the membership went up in the early 70s, actually. As well as this active and busy married, social and work-life balance, Gordon managed to indulge his passion for the outdoors as much as possible, although he'd apparently given up on rock climbing as a pastime. He was still sailing and was even building his own boat on the driveway of Bluestones, but until it was finished his sailing was restricted to crewing for other members of the Row Island Sailing Club or using his father's boat. This he managed to do lots, he was in and out of the water like a duck's head, and it is possibly due in part to the amount of time and money that he spent on indulging his nautical passions that Carol began to become bored and disgruntled with it. I found no accounts that suggested Carol shared a husband's passion for sailing whatsoever, and so if she was often left at home, perhaps it was here that she began to find other ways to pass the time. But in April 1969, an event was to happen that would foreshadow a series of events that would ultimately undermine Gordon and Carol's relationship, although at the time that couldn't have been foreseen. The previous year, on the 6th of March 1968, Carol's 16-year-old sister Christine had given birth to a daughter, Vanessa, but she'd never told her family who Vanessa's father was. It was almost certainly a 17-year-old youth named John Paul Rapson, who Christine had been involved in a casual relationship with for a significant period of time, 
Rapson indeed later claimed that Christine had told him he was the father. What was more certain was that when Vanessa was just 13 months old in April 1969, Christine was brutally murdered by Rapson during an argument at her mother's house on Roos Road in Barrow. He was subsequently arrested, charged and convicted for the crime, received the mandatory life sentence for murder, but for some reason was released early in 1976, having served just seven years of his sentence. As Carol's mother was in poor health, and her brother Ivor already had a wife and three children of his own to support, neither thought they could manage the child, and Vanessa was for a time placed into the care of the local authority, residing in a Barrow children's home, Dunlop House. A few months after Christine's death, Gordon and Carol made the compassionate act of deciding to formally adopt Vanessa, to which there was no official objection, and it was formalised before the end of 1969, although it is reported that the whole process was done in secrecy until it was finalised, an act that caused considerable friction between Gordon and Carol and the rest of Carol's family about their non-consultation. Now I can't see what the issue they would have had with this would have been really. It must have struck a chord with Carol being adopted herself and perhaps she and Gordon saw it as a chance to give a loving home to her niece where no one else in the family seemed to be able or willing to against the other alternative of leaving her in the care system waiting to be fostered or adopted by strangers. Around this time, Carol was pregnant herself with her and Gordon's first natural child and they welcomed a son, Jeremy, into the world on the 30th of March 1970. She was pregnant again less than six months later and the Park family was complete when Rachel Park was born on the 27th of May 1971. By all accounts, the Parks hadn't decided on starting a family this early into their marriage but with the adoption of Vanessa, they'd opted to bring their plans forward so that the children would be close in ages and company for one another. But going from sailing about and the round table functions to having three preschool children in less than 18 months is a massive life changer and takes its toll, especially on Carol, who was left at home to deal with motherhood whilst Gordon was out working. Not helping matters was the fact that his parents' marriage was breaking down at this time also, which was impacting the family business, and sick of the stress of everything, Gordon decided to leave Sydney C. Park and Sons to work for other decorating firms in the Barrow area, first Listers and then Ferrantes. Neither of these roles lasted long, however, and by autumn 1972, Gordon had decided that he wanted a complete new direction career-wise and following in the footsteps of his wife, enrolled on a teacher training course at Ambleside's Charlotte Mason College. Carol by this time had returned to teaching after her maternity leave, and had found a place at Broughton in Furness Church of England School. Of course, this decision was to impact the Park family financially, and Carol became the sole breadwinner for the family. It's about here that many opinions and attitudes towards Gordon tend to take a turn for the unfavourable and he's described as being controlling and condescending by several people who knew him at this time. By 1973, it's reported that Carol was handing over control of all of her wages to Gordon, and despite the family's strained financial circumstances, he continued spending money that they didn't have on his sailing, which caused considerable friction in the Park household, and the Parks began rowing constantly, so much so that the kids got used to it. 
Unhappy at home, Carol's mind and attention began to wander and she began looking elsewhere. By that time also, Carol had enrolled on an open university course to further her own teaching qualification and it was here that she embarked upon the first of what was to be several affairs in her married life, starting an illicit relationship with a fellow open university student named Colin Foster. He lived with his wife Isabella and their children in nearby Ascombe Furness, but when he met Carol Park at an open university social function, he was instantly attracted to her and she to him. They began an extramarital affair that lasted some 18 months, trysts which increased from once a month to a couple of times each week. Later accounts suggest that Gordon may have even known about this and for a time at least condoned it. It's even suggested that the Parks and the Fosters would go out as a foursome and in echoes of the round table activity, there was some partner swapping held at Bluestones. Now whilst this can't be confirmed, sources claim that by 1974, Isabella Foster knew of this affair after Gordon Park had outlined his suspicions to her and when she'd confronted Colin about it, he'd admitted it and ended the affair. Carol at the same time had returned home and confessed and by all accounts that was it and the affair was forgiven. Colin and Carol were to meet up for a last illicit tryst a few months later at Keele University when Carol was there on a weekend course but Isabella was to learn of this also and to save their marriage the Fosters left Cumbria moving up to Scotland in 1975. Colin Foster was never to hear from Carol Park again. Before Carol had completely finished her trysts with Colin Foster though, before the final bit at Keele University that weekend, she'd already embarked upon another, much more serious affair, again with someone she'd met through her open university course, and like herself, and by that time her husband also, a fellow school teacher. David Brearley was a Sunderland-born ex-teacher who'd left the profession to pursue a career in the police, which he served in from 1969 to 1971. Finding that being a copper wasn't for him really, he'd left and returned to his teaching career. A six-year marriage had failed, but had produced a son, Michael, who David was awarded custody of in 1973. He'd embarked upon an open university course around this time also to further his teaching qualification, and as part of this had attended summer school at Keele University in Staffordshire, in August 1974. On the same course as David was a petite 28-year-old female fellow teacher that David claimed later there was an immediate attraction between, Carol Ann Park. Their friendship quickly developed into a relationship, although David claims it didn't become sexual at that stage because he felt too guilty about Carol being married. According to him though, she was very frank about her sexual history and as well as telling him of several affairs that she'd already had, was also highly critical of Gordon's bedroom manner, saying how he would time their lovemaking and then give her a critical appraisal of her performance. Sexy, eh? Sometime before the end of summer school that year, it seems that this relationship between Carol and David had already become serious enough that Carol had decided to leave Gordon and to start a new life with David Brearley up in the northeast of England in Teesside, where he was heading back to when, in the words of Alice Cooper himself, school's out for summer. Now how that conversation went back home you can only imagine, 
but on the 31st of August 1974, Carol became a resident at the High Dudden Guest House, an establishment at Dudden Bridge near Broughton in Furness that was at the time run by Anne and Derek Walker. The Walkers remembered years later Carol turning up that day complete with a suitcase full of clothes and a freestanding hairdryer being dropped off by Gordon Park and the three Park children. Carol quickly became friends with the Walkers and unburdened herself to them about a troubled home life, telling them how she'd left Gordon and the children and was involved in a relationship with David Brearley and how she planned to fight for custody of her children, to whom, despite a chaotic private life, she was by all accounts fiercely devoted to. During her stay at High Dudden, Carol was to meet with Gordon several times by mutual arrangement at the King's Head public house in Broughton to discuss things where she always made a point of arranging for Derek Walker to come and collect her, claiming that she was too frightened to let Gordon bring her back. David Brearley was also a frequent visitor to the guesthouse over this time, and the pair discussed being together and the practicalities of Carol moving to the northeast. To this extent, and by this time their relationship a full one in every sense, know what I mean? Carol moved up to the northeast to Teesside in December 1974 into a house at number 21 Scott Road in Norman Beyond Tees, together with Brearley and his young son Michael. She obtained a teaching position at Sunningdale Special School in Middlesbrough and life was all rosy for the pair, bar the cloud of Carol not having her children. To try and set this right, Carol then embarked upon legal proceedings to obtain custody at Teesside Magistrates Court, whilst having a very limited access with Jeremy, Rachel and Vanessa. It was limited enough due to the considerable distance that she now lived from them, but also according to David Brearley, because Gordon Park controlled what little access she had. At first this was only allowed at Carol's mother's house, before it was relaxed somewhat and she was allowed to take them to things like the baths or the swings, and eventually they were even allowed up to Teesside for a week during the 1975 half-term holidays. Devastatingly for Carol though, full custody of the Park children was awarded to Gordon on the 10th of March 1975. She'd found the whole situation of being away from the children hard as it was, even though it was of her own choice to go and do so, and this and the restricted access had left her severely depressed. Within a week of custody being awarded, according to David Brearley, Carol had become so distraught and depressed that she told him she had no option but to return to Lease to be with the children, had packed her bags and returned to Cumbria. This return was short-lived though, as only a couple of days after returning, Carol had once again contacted Brearley and asked him to come and collect her, telling him that it wasn't working. He agreed, but before he did come to collect her however, she had a violent episode in the house that evening where she smashed several items of the furniture in the presence of Gordon, his new acquaintance Judith Walmsley, because he too had moved on by this point, and a family friend Alan Shaw. Carol had to be restrained by Gordon for her own safety, but she was calm by the time David Brearley had arrived to collect her later that evening, and she returned with him to Norman Beyond Tees. Carol and Brearley's relationship was never really to recover from this. Although she'd returned to the northeast and gone back to a teaching position, she became more depressed and unstable, and was eventually diagnosed with depression precipitated by matrimonial disharmony. 
The specialist that she was referred to further believed Carol had a disorganised personality in that she was unstable in her relationships. Eventually, after weeks of her displaying antagonism to David and his son, Carol announced once again that she was heading back to Lise, this time for good, to live with Gordon and her children. David didn't try to stop her, and he and Carol's relationship ended for good. By the end of 1975, in a letter to a college friend Rosemary Farmer, Carol described how things had appeared to have taken a turn for the better. She was happier and contented being back home, and her relationship with Gordon had improved. Both of them seemed to be making an effort at their second or third go, was it? I've lost count a bit there. Yet by a few months later, in early 1976, several people who knew the couple reported the all-too-familiar atmosphere was present once again whenever they visited Bluestones, remarking on how things just didn't seem right, and consensually of the opinion that Carol now looked a haunted, introverted shadow of her former self, and had drastically lost weight. Although Carol would confide in her brother and close friends that things weren't right at home, as the summer of that year approached, a record-breaking summer that I've mentioned in an episode of the show before, others that she spoke to around this time came away with the impression that she was just a usual self, looking forward to the summer holidays to spend with her family, and beyond that for the new school term, certainly giving no hint of another life-changing move such as getting a divorce, starting another affair, or upping and buggering off across the country. And by this time, it was July 1976. Now, Carol was definitely at a dancing display at Barrow Civic Hall on July the 15th, because her kids and nieces were taking part in it, and her brother was there with his children to confirm this. She'd also promised to deliver a birthday present to her niece Kay on Sunday the 18th of July 1976, but didn't turn up with a gift, and indeed, the Price family were never to see or hear from Carol again. So it would seem that it was either Friday the 16th of July, the start of the summer holidays, or Saturday the 17th of July 1976, that Carol Ann Park disappeared from the face of the earth and remained a missing person until two divers found her body on a ledge in the middle of Coniston Water 21 years later. And that, people, is a good note to leave this episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast for the time being, but rest assured the conclusion of the tale, because there is quite a lot more of it to come, will be released in a day or two. Well, it'll be out tomorrow, actually. I did decide just as I was recording it to split it into two parts, because it's so long, and I was thinking, I've got to edit it, I've got to do that. Why don't I just stretch it over two parts? It'd be much better. I thank you very much for joining me today. I hope you found the tale interesting. It certainly is a fascinating tale, believe me. I hope you found it interesting anyway, and I look forward to you joining me for the conclusion of The Corpse in Coniston Water. Until then, I've been Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Sooner than I usually would, actually. Thanks very much for joining me, guys. Take care, and goodbye for now.